Make sure you become Patreon subscribers to catch our full interview with Rose McGowan. And then stand by for our full interview with Gabor Mate. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. The next people we're bringing on, they are not monsters. They are actually good people. They do good in the world. They are the opposite of Joe Scarborough and Joe Manchin and all the other schools at MSNBC or wherever, you know, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party like Manchin and Cinema. So we are bringing in two great journalists. They are labor reporters. That's their beat. Alex Press of Jacobin and Jonah Furman of Labor Notes. Alex and Jonah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Katie. Yeah, hey, of course. how's it going? Good, thanks. So this is a big deal. Alex has been on the show before, but Jonah debuted. So things are really going to just sit back and watch and see what happens. <laughs> you never know what the Katie Halber show bump will bring. But um, I wanted to start off by asking you guys, what about this moment before we're going to get into more specific strikes and organizing labor disputes, but on a more like macro level, I want to ask about what is happening at this moment. People are talking about a great, the great resignation. People are talking about a labor shortage. Some places are, are framing this as a great moment. Uh, the Washington Post says that it's a sign of workers who are less willing to endure inconvenient hours and poor com- compensation who are quitting instead to find better opportunities. According to a report, there were 10.4 million job openings in the country at the end of August, down slightly from July's record high, which was adjusted up to 11.1 million, but still a tremendously high number. This gives workers enormous leverage if as they look for a better fit. But at the same time, the same Washington Post article did say that the high level of people quitting their jobs was probably due in large part to people leaving jobs to take other positions, although the data does not specify why people are quitting and where they are ending up. So where are they ending up? What is happening? Is this a good moment? Is this a bad moment? I want to let Jonah answer first because he's been sharing lots of sort of uh, numbers contextualizing it compared to sort of historic strikes. Um, And we can talk then about the resignations. Yeah. um, Well, I guess something I was just looking at is, um, you know, there's people are calling this striketober. They're like, this is it would make you think this is like the most strikes in October you've ever seen because we like came up with this cool term. Um, But, you know, I looked at. The last big strike, the the biggest strike before John Deere was in 2019. It was the General Motors strike. It was in October. If you look at that October of two years ago, there was 85,000 workers on strike. Right now we have something like 15,000. So it's not just a numbers thing. It's like a narrative thing too. People are feeling like there's a moment happening here. It's not just like how many workers went. I mean, you know, it's a big deal if the IATSE 60,000 go out on strike. There's other big strikes that might happen that would change that equation, but it's not its not quite just counting up how many people are on strike and is it like the biggest strike wave? Clearly it's not, but there's definitely something in the water that's like, you know, 
collective action and individual resignations that are happening now have a political character to them because they're connected to, you know, a national crisis. They're connected to what's happening in Congress. They're connected to certain things that are happening in the labor movement that are sort of signaling a shift in strategy and mood. So we can go into any of those, but like one of the things I would say is this isn't the resignations thing is is a really huge seems to be sort of like a historic numbers thing. The union side of it, the collective action side of it isn't historic in its sort of volume, but it is historic in sort of capturing the imagination and tying up with national political narratives and social you know, people just talking to each other at their job have a sense that there's strike activity happening. So I feel like there's sort of like an X factor here that 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 brings the moment together politically. Yeah. So specifically about those quitting numbers that you're talking about, Katie. So, you know, the Department of Labor released some numbers, some data on August quits. Right. And it was 2.9 percent of the U.S. workforce quit their job that month. So it's like 4.3 million people. And the sectors, the parts of the economy where they're quitting are, you know, in the private sector, we're talking about retail, hospitality and healthcare not far behind. So in that sense, you know, there is a real obvious valence there. These are people who had to deal with the public, who had to deal with higher risk during the pandemic. And there's this sense that, like, you know, they 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 sacrificed and they sacrificed and they got nothing in return. Now, I mean, it's a mixed story, right? Because without a union and without sort of collective action at your workplace, you can ask for better conditions. But if your boss refuses, what do you have to do? You can either stay and accept that or you can quit, right? So workers are fed up, but they also are without collective help, right? In trying to get better working conditions. So people in those sectors are leaving and in fact are switching industries entirely. So they're trying to find different types of jobs, um, and they're seeing better raises by doing that than people who stay at their jobs. But that said, you know, when I think about what that actually means, right, where do you get a raise and where is retail that you might have quit? Maybe you quit Burger King and you got an Amazon warehouse job, right? That would be a big raise, right? Amazon pays way better than fast food. But that job still sucks, right? You're still on your own and now dealing with an Amazon warehouse job. Um, and that's where hiring is happening, right? Amazon can't hire enough. So, you know, to call it necessarily a success story in some sense, I think isn't accurate, but there is this political valence Jonah talked about, which is this sense that there was a national mobilization during the pandemic, that people were actually sort of told that they were sacrificing on the behalf of their country, basically on behalf of the public. And that's why it was okay for them to have to risk their health and that of their family and be forced into mandatory overtime. And then they're seeing that they're not being rewarded for that at all, right? So people are getting very fed up. And it, when you have a union, often that now in the private sector is starting to lead like to things like strike authorization votes and in some cases strikes. Um, but yeah, to Jonah's point, I mean, it's not a historic strike wave, but there is a sense that you're not really isolated if you're willing to take a stand. And can you guys talk about what you're covering now? I mean, Jonah, you're covering John Deere workers, you're covering Kellogg. Alex, you are covering various organizing efforts as well. And also, I, we're definitely going to talk to you about the fatal shooting of Helena Hutchins, who you wrote a great piece about at Jacobin. But Jonah, can you set up what you're covering? And also, you know, it's there's a lot of tragic news. You know, there's been a lot of attention paid, understandably, to the death of Hutchins at the hands of Alec Baldwin. Obviously, there's a lot of like celebrity power in that story and it's capturing a lot of headlines. But there's also been a lot of death and tragedy among John Deere workers. So could you set that up for us, please? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'll just say, you know, more broadly what I cover at Labor Notes, we're, we're a labor publication, but we're also an organizing project. And we basically cover the union movement from the inside, from the perspective of the membership. So a lot of the time that's talking about internal union politics that people aren't following. There's huge things happening in the United Auto Workers and the Teamsters as institutions that are like historic moments in in the labor movement that is really not getting coverage outside of it. My beat at Labor Notes, one of the big things I cover is the UAW, which is, of course, the union that represents 10,000 John Deere workers who are on strike right now. Um, and yeah, like you said, you know, it, it's been a it's been a wild story. Uh, yesterday, there was really tragic news where uh, Picketer was, you know, a striking worker was um, hit by a car and killed. He was a 15 year John Deere employee. Um, and, you know, talking to people who knew him well and were on the picket line with him, it was like a really intense day for the John Deere strikers yesterday. And, you know, talking about safety, especially in like a, a you know, John Deere is a hard job. You're on a factory floor, you're dealing with heavy equipment, you're using your body. It's really intense. Um, and safety is like a, a big concern for for a job like that. It's also, it puts on the table, like how much does the employer care about our safety? This is what people were talking about yesterday and today with this picketer who was hit. And one of the things that was, you know, interesting is now uh, this morning, John Deere in Waterloo, Iowa, a big facility, uh, you know, not the same area with, where this guy was killed, but they said, you can park on company property so you don't have to cro- walk across the highway with no crosswalk, you know, to, to get to the site. And then this afternoon, they reversed it, saying, actually, you're going to have to walk across the highway still, which is true at all these picket uh, locations. So there's definitely a, a sense of, like, how much is my life worth to my employer? And obviously, that ties into the past year and a half. It's like, you know, the Don- John Deere strikers have these shirts that say, uh, deemed essential in 2020, prove it in 2021. You can't build it from home. Basically, you know, there's a sense among these workers that we kept agriculture going in this country and we risked our lives to do it. And, uh, you know, and now people are getting killed on the picket line, too, and risking their lives to stand up to the boss. So there's definitely something going on with this visceral sense of like, is my life worth anything to my employer? And if not, what does that mean for this being my job for 20 years and what we owe each other as workers and a corporation? And can you explain what the jobs are like for people who work at John Deere? Yeah, the most common job is called assembler. And that means working in some way on an assembly line. You basically work in, you know, a department that most of it is like huge tractors, like bigger than you think, like $600,000, $800,000, million dollar harvesters. So you're working in a big facility. And then there's another group of workers that's, uh, you know, working the biggest warehouse for John Deere in the country. So you're on a huge factory floor. There's some skilled trades people who do, you know, like electricians and things like that. But for the most part, these are, you know, blue collar workers making about 20 bucks an hour working heavy machinery and working with their bodies, building massive, uh, you know, industrial farming equipment, essentially. And Alex, what are you covering besides, uh, I mean, there a lot, but can you share some of the stories that you've been working on besides the really interesting Alec Baldwin one? And I hate calling it that one. I don't know what to call it. The what actually that's what, what should we be calling that story? I mean, it's very related to the broader story of both IATSE's contract agreement ne- negotiations, as well as what Jonah was just talking about, right? There's this sense, you know, I think it's illustrated in a great quote that a DSA member um, paraphrased an EMT who showed up to a DSA meeting during the pandemic. And she said, 
that, you know, when you realize your boss is willing to kill you, it changes your relationship to work. And while that might be like an inflammatory way to put it, I mean, that is in fact what we're talking about when we talk about these horrible tragedies like what happened on the set of Rust. In a sense, those are all but inevitable, right? I mean, workers in that industry have been talking about dying in car crashes on the way home after a 14 or a 16 or a 20-hour day at work, which is the norm in the industry. It's nuts. Um, This is how a film and TV always operate. And so in that sense, you know, I think they're all very connected. And it's part of why the timing of that tragedy is really kind of couldn't come at a more fraught time when members have been talking and talking about how these are unsafe working conditions. And they didn't mean guns specifically, but they meant a total disdain and disinterest in their own safety on the set and then on on their way home after um, a long day. And so in that sense, I think they're all very related. And what the John Deere workers are talking about are what grocery cashiers are talking about, about, you know, massive numbers of people getting COVID, right? There's all of this is sort of wrapped in, again, to this bigger moment of people having to reevaluate what they're willing to risk to get a paycheck. And that's how there's a sense that you aren't isolated, right? These might be very different situations. A John Deere picketer getting killed, um, you know, that is very different than Alec Baldwin killing someone on the set of a movie. Um, But there is a sort of sense that the economy and the bosses just factor in these sorts of dangers and risks to people's health as a matter of doing business. Um, and after that being intensified during the pandemic, workers are sort of seeing it in a very different light, right? They're not accepting that that should be a standard operating cost. I also will say that, you know, the what happened on the picket line with John Deere, you know, is happening a lot across the country. There has really been this move towards people willing to attack picket lines with cars. This is part of Republicans' passing laws that make it okay to attack protesters with your cars. I mean, always those laws are going to have ramifications for labor because that's the people that are going to be on the front line in isolated dark areas. Um, and so in that sense, I think, you know, at the the Warrior Met picket, um, that strike that's been going on now for like seven months, um, 1,100 coal miners, they've been hit by, they've been attacked by cars, I think seven times now, at least. It might even be more than that at this point. Um, So this is like a pretty standard tactic of people thinking they have the right to break a picket line and having very little interest in caring about the health and safety of the workers who are, again, fighting for the broader community. I mean, you see that at Deer because so much of the community is tied to that employer. But that's true at every picket line, right, that actually the community needs to support these workers because they're on the front line for all of us. Um, And so I think they should really be seen as like broader political tax when that's sort of being normalized and tragedies like what happened with John Deere are happening. Right. Are there any stories that you want to share, by the way, Jonah, from the workers that you've been talking to or the stories that you've been covering? Oh, man. I mean, there's an endless flood of John Deere stuff to talk about. It's like it's an amazing thing. You know, one thing I'll say broadly is like it is maybe everyone knows this, but one of the things that's so powerful about strikes is that it takes people who all they have in common is they work in the same place and they put them into the first collective action they've ever had in their life. And it's a collective action that puts everything on the line for them against directly against corporate America. It's like this transformative experience. And you don't see it immediately, but I'm talking to people who are super into Trump, Second Amendment stuff. I'm talking to, you know, workers who are super into Bernie, talking to workers who hate politics, who I think would probably say in the abstract are not pro-union, you know, like there's all kinds of people in this mix. And part of what's so exciting about the idea of a strike wave in any sense is not just that if they strike and win, they can like 
tip the economy. You know, like like John Deere getting a five dollar an hour raise, those ten thousand workers is not going to change everything. It'll help, um, you know, in that industry and in those communities. But what's more exciting about it is the idea that you know we could have enough collective action experiences that we can build that muscle. You know, they say like solidarity is a verb. It's also a muscle. It's like if you do this once. Uh, you become the kind of person who can do something like this. So I would just say like from the broadest level, the most amazing conversations I'm having are people who are like, oh my God, like corporate America will, like Alex said, like we'll just, you know, I'm expendable to them and my boss is not my friend and the union is what's going to help me survive. So that's been kind of the most amazing thing about talking to people who are literally, you know, standing four to 8 a.m. in the pouring rain for the first time in their life saying I have to hold the line for all my brothers and sisters. Like it's, it's a beautiful thing. And can you actually talk more, either one of you about that, the law uh, with, in terms of running people over with your cars? I I'll say, you know, the John Deere uh, picketer who is hit, I, all signs point to that having been an accident, but it is true that there's been all these threats made on the picket line. Iowa did pass a law like that. I don't like last year or something like that. Um, and there's plenty of people who say, you know, you're, you're standing in the road or, or, you know, I now have this right to do this, especially people who are crossing the picket line, you know, scabbing on the strike and going in to deliver stuff or pick stuff up or do work in place of these workers. So I can't speak to it more broadly, but like, it's true. Also the kite, there's a strike in, in California, Northern California, where uh, there's been two incidents of people being hit by cars. So it's not just like an Alabama thing or an Iowa thing or a red state thing. Like there's, there's clearly something where people feel like this is now just a tool in the toolbox of reactionary behavior. Yeah. I need to do a show on that. I honestly haven't, I barely like have been following that part of it and it's pretty scary. I have to do like some kind of deep dive uh, into that. Alex, can you talk to us about what you found out when you in, looked into the Rust accident? And for people who, in case you're just joining or you don't know about this, Rust is the film that Alec Baldwin produced and was in where there was a fatal shooting of Helena Hutchins, who was a cinematographer. And, you know, I, wa- I guess I want to say that, like, my sense of, cor- you know, my heart goes out to, like, every relative, every person who's dealing with loss and this is, you know, getting a lot of attention, understandably. And it is tragic. And now there's a son, a 10-year-old without his mother, and there's a man without a wife who's now widowed. And, you know, all these people lost a friend and a colleague. And there's also things that are happening that are less dramatic, like every day, that are sometimes they're deadly. Some, You know, we, we see these stories of cab drivers in New York City and suicide. These are just kind of extreme, tragic examples of the corners that are being cut. And I was shocked when I read more. I read and I read your article, Alex, about the carelessness. I read, I can't remember if this was in your piece or another piece, but that there had been a shooting with a hot gun, a loaded gun, just days before. Did you talk about that in your piece? I can't remember if that, I I mean, you had a lot in your piece that was shocking to me, but. Yeah, I didn't, I haven't actually seen a ton of information about, there were, so there were misfires with the prop gun, um, which does actually happen fairly frequently on sets, but it was enough, there were several in one day, a few days before, to the point that, yeah, people on the set were sending texts and otherwise sort of communicating that it felt like a completely out of control, unsafe environment. 
Um, I mean, I think the thing here is like, so that shooting happened on October 21st and very quickly, all of these details came out about the fact that people had been raising the alarm on the safety conditions on the set, that there had been six union members who had walked off of the set just that morning, six hours before the shooting. Um, They'd been raising concerns for days about not getting paid on time, about, again, this issue of being told they had to drive an hour after a long day to find a place to stay because the production wouldn't provide hotel rooms near the near the ranch where it was being shot outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, things like that, you know, on and on. Even and the irony, of course, is that Alec Baldwin had actually written, uh, had made a video in support of IATSE, um, saying producers don't give a fuck about your life just days before this happened. Um, and in fact, it was in the comments on that on Facebook that one of the people on the set had said, hey, by the way, did you know I'm literally on this guy's movie right now and we aren't getting paid and we're not getting enough sleep? My coworker slept in his car on Sunday instead of having to drive an hour home. Um, so, in it, you know, all of which is to say this is was incredibly predictable, right? I mean, it's very unusual in the film world for six crew members to walk off rather than stay. I mean, this work is so sort of precarious as it is that people do not want to lose gigs once they have them. Um, and meanwhile, these people are also stranded in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. To feel So to feel that you have to walk off the set and leave your job in that environment does suggest that things were very bad. Um, and actually, it did come out that the line producer... Since I wrote that article, it's come out that the line producer on that movie had actually had an unfair label, labor practice charge filed against him with the NLRB on a previous um, set because he had fired workers for um, raising concerns around safety conditions and who had tried to unionize, um, go union on that set for reasons like being asked to hold an 80-pound object above an actress's head uh, in a shoot with no safety cable. So, you know, I spoke to someone who had worked with the guy in charge of safety on this set, assistant director, um, that's the person usually overseeing the safety conditions despite that title, assistant. Um, and that guy's nickname, according to this person on a previous production, was Safety Last. Um, so that is how bad things were. And again, you know, all of this kind of comes back to how the producers are empowered in this industry. There's really no sense that they need to adhere to any kind of standards, right? They can hire the cheapest people. Um, so the armorer on the set was 24 years old. And had very little experience, but presumably, you know, she came cheaper than more experienced armorers. And again and again, especially with low budget films like this, that is the priority and everything else is secondary. And so, you know, Alec Baldwin's comment in his video that they don't give a fuck about you uh, is very much proven um, in this situation. And again, you know, it's, it's a tragedy because there's a gun involved. So it led to a death immediately which is horrible and, you know, is being investigated. But again, everyone I spoke to in this industry said, you know, this is very similar to dying in a car crash after a long day. You know, this is about not being valued as workers who produce, you know, skilled labor um, that deserve to be compensated fairly for it. Yeah, I just wanted to actually share the comments from the person who was working on the film, Lane Looper, I believe. Yeah. So yeah. here are some comments. This is, as you said, Alex, in re- response to... Um, to Alec Baldwin's comments. This is someone's public Facebook, so I'm not like, you know, blowing up anyone's spot. But Lane Looper wrote in response to Alec Baldwin statement in solidarity with IATSE, which stands for, those are the, can you remind me what IATSE stands for? Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. So it's the below the line workers, right? The people who aren't sort of big shot names, but do a lot of the manual labor or costume or hair, craft services, all of that stuff. 
on sets. Okay. So Lane Looper responds to Alec Baldwin's video saying, I'm literally on the show in New Mexico with him and the producers on that movie are treating the local crew like fucking dog shit. Absolute dog shit. At the moment, I'm fighting to get my crew on this movie hotel rooms when we go long or too tired to drive the hour back from location to Albuquerque because, as Alex said, they were not putting them up close by to save costs. They were sending them from Santa Fe to Albuquerque. They either say no or offer a garbage roadside motel that's used as a homeless shelter. In fact, the line producer on the flick complained the motel she booked charges her 10 bucks more per night than the homeless. They haven't even paid the crew a proper check. My B second had to sleep in his fucking car on Sunday night because they won't give him a room and he was too tired to drive the hour home. Nobody on any production should have to sleep in the cold in their car at base camp to not die driving home. Already have called my BA and he is fully involved. The show keeps arguing they don't have to do anything because contract minimums don't force them to. In fact, in the low budget agreement, a hotel doesn't need to be provided until 14 hours worked. And this shows doing hour lunches. So it requires a 15 hour elapsed day before they will volunteer a hotel. So here's where my crew's at with this show and the unions involved 12.5 hour days worked with an hour lunch, two hours of driving a day, leaving exactly eight hours of time not at work. Most folks on my show are getting five hours of sleep a night. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like a nightmare from start to finish and also exactly what, I mean, I wrote about this situation because it was exactly what people have been talking about in IATSE for months as they negotiate this contract that, you know, they voted to authorize a strike overwhelmingly, almost 99%. So that would have been 60,000 people. So these members have, and part of the urgency, what those members have been talking about is this exact thing, right? The hours work that he mentions, having turnaround times that only require, you know, eight hours from when you leave set to when you have to be back or nine hours, um, not including sometimes the commute. Um, and so it's the exact same thing, right? And the fact that it even came up in those Facebook comments pointed to the in this insufficiency of the existing standards, right? Which is part of what the members who are still unhappy with the tentative agreement are talking about. They're saying, you know, we've already had these standards where we get 10 hours of turnaround, 10 hours from being on set to, you know, going home and coming back. And it's still dangerous that it's not enough time. It allows us to be worked as long as we possibly can. Um, and then we have to commute and we don't get to see our family, so on and so forth. Um, and so it's still the exact same conversation that's going on. And so I think part of when people are thinking about like who exactly is responsible for this tragedy, you know, at some level, it is the existing standards that empower producers to work people this much. You could have the most talented armorer or assistant director that you want. If people are getting five hours of sleep a night, a mistake is going to happen. Um, it doesn't matter how good someone is at their job. Right. So it's inevitable. And that's why, as you put it, this was not a random accident. Yeah, I was quoting a worker and every worker I spoke to basically said exactly that. that. You know, so many levels of safety had to be ignored in this specific incident, dealing with guns that had actual rounds in them that weren't checked, that were just handed to an actor by the wrong person, so on and so forth. It was very clear that this was just a shoddy, kind of tragic, horrible workplace situation. And that's what happens in such environments. And here, I just want to show some of the photos from Hutchins' Instagram here she is on set. Yeah, I mean, one thing One thing I just will say is that Local 600 is her local, um, and it's the same local that there was a very ho- high-profile um, death on set in 2014, I believe. Sarah Jones was her name. She was also an, a, she was an, a cinematographer. Uh, I believe she was 27 years old. 
And on that set, again, the assistant director had taken shortcuts, had them film on a live train track in the middle of the night. No one had any sense of whether a train was coming. There was no lookout or anything like that. And that person died on set. And there, it was the exact same thing where everyone said, you know, we need better safety standards. We need more oversight. We need, you know, more, the unions need to have stronger agreements here so that these workers can push back without being afraid of being fired. Um, and very little happened, right? I mean, Jones's dad spoke at a vigil over the weekend um, that was in remembrance of Hutchins. And he said, how has nothing changed? You know, it's the exact same situation in the exact same local. And this is, I think there have been four cinematographers killed in the past years, past 10 years in the U.S. So this is a very dangerous job. Um, and so these safety concerns members are voicing sometimes are very literal in the sense of, you know, getting hit by a train, getting shot on set. But it, there's also all these deaths that are not counted um, that happen on the way home or otherwise off um, set from being worked too hard. And in that sense, it is very similar to so many other types of jobs. I mean, workplace deaths happen all the time in this country. They don't often get this kind of attention because there's not a celebrity involved, but it is part and parcel of an economy that prioritizes speed and profit over what workers need to survive. Well, I would also say, Alex, like just on that point, you know, there's 14 deaths on the job every day on average. And to tie back to what we were talking about at the beginning, like this great resignation thing is like in this country, that's sort of the cost of doing business and workers know this. But if you, in these cases where we have these high profile contract fights or unions are organized in some way to talk about this issue as a collective issue, a political issue, not just a freak accident that happened to someone as an individual. Like this is kind of the lens that I've been understanding this moment in this striketober thing and this great resignation is like, on the one hand, you have a, a collection, a huge aggregate of individual quittings, individual safety violations, individual experiences at work. And on the other hand, you have the, the sort of, you know, not imperfectly, but somehow collectivized you know, articulation of what what does this mean for me as another worker? Even if it wasn't me on that set, I'm not a cinematographer or I'm not on strike at John Deere. Like you have a way to talk about these as events that are connected as opposed to just these mass statistics. You know, no death is different, like they're equal value, but in the ways that we are able to tell stories about what's happening to us all together, like that's the difference is, there's this huge mass of unorganized folks who are having individualized aggregate experiences. They're each quitting their job versus John Deere. We're all going on strike, you know, and the country understands the second one in a different way than it understands the first, but they're the same expression of work sucks in this country. Work is unacceptable right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely have been describing it as two sides of the same coin, right? You know, if you have a union, you can stay and fight. If you don't, you can quit and use your feet. Um, but it is the, I mean, this is sort of what I was talking about with this sense of this national mobilization of sorts. I mean, this was the um, sort of unintended consequence of telling low paid workers that they're essential um, is that they then may expect to be treated as such. Right. And so there's this sense that you're not experiencing these risks or problems or overwork on your own, but in fact, as part of a sort of national problem, and then you and your coworkers were grouped together as a type of worker. Um, and so what happens to them also affects you, right? That this is a shared language you can talk about problems with. All right. I just wanted to show this photo that she had left on Instagram that said, standing in solidarity with our Yahtzee crew here in New Mexico on Rust, 
Can you guys talk about these negotiations, how they're going, whether or not the rank and file is going to support the agreement where, where they are in the process of these negotiations? Yeah. So, so they, they avoided that strike that they had voted to go on, um, just last minute. They got an agreement like, you know, 28 hours before the strike deadline, um, a few weeks ago at this point. And so the next, you know, they call it a tentative agreement for a reason, right? Because it's tentative. The workers get to vote on it. You know, unions are democratic institutions, imperfect as some of them may be. Um, and so right now they have tentative agreements. Um, so this is actually two different contracts. It's very confusing. Um, one is the basic agreement that covers most of those 60,000 workers. There's also the area standards agreement, which generally kind of copies exactly the standards agreed on in the first one, but is separate. Um, and so those two contracts now, they've come to tentative agreements on them. So the membership is now discussing them. Um, the bullet points and highlights that they've been given so far, the full language of the contract has not been shared with the members yet. Um, but they've been having meetings as locals, right? So there's 36 locals covered in these. So all of them are meeting with their local elected leadership. They're having town halls, things like that. Um, and that leadership is, you know, has pretty uniformly now recommended that they ratify that contract. They've said that this is the best we can get in this moment um, and that they cannot ask for more. Um, so part of the dynamic here is that the membership actually has moved over the course of the past few months to want more than some of the leadership came to the table demanding in the first place. Um, so it is a complicated dynamic for sure. Um, I think notably there was one leader of a local, Local 700, who had said that during the last contract in 2018 that it shouldn't be ratified. This time she says it should. Um, so that it has an effect um, in that there are no kind of formal elected leaders that are opposed to the contract. That said, there are certainly members who are at the rank and file level who are saying that actually they didn't ask for enough in the first place. And if we vote this down, that gives our leaders the ability to, without kind of getting any complaints from the producers or the studios, to come back to the table and demand more. Um, and so there is a conversation ongoing about how that's going to happen. Um, some members are certainly determined to vote this contract down. Um, but again, you know, everyone is sort of waiting for the very prolonged process in IATSE of getting the full language um, and discussing it. You know, I think it's interesting that the local elected leaders, they put out a joint statement saying that it should be ratified today. Um, and even in that statement, they mentioned that people, there are people who are opposed, right? And they, they literally said, we hear you, we see you, um, which I don't think was the best choice of language uh, for very angry members. Um, but that said, you know, it's, they are not pretending there's unity here. They're sort of asking for unity, asking for the full support of the membership. Um, but there's currents of dissent in there. Um, and so, you know, it's it's very hard um, without the full language and without existing organization to oppose such a uniformly kind of recommended tentative agreement. Um, but it's been done before. And certainly John Deere workers did something very similar. Um, so, you know, the process isn't set yet. There's not a date for a vote. Um, IATSE is very slow on this. It usually takes them actually a couple months to get to a ratification vote. Um, but I would say right now it's up in the air, right? It looks like members will ratify it, but there are certainly people who are working to make sure that dissent is heard. Yeah, I'll say on John Deere, you know, tentative agreement is a tentative agreement. The, they had a tentative agreement for 10 days that was recommended by all of their local leaders across 11 local unions um, and the national union and the company, and they voted it down 90%. So uh, like, and that's what triggered the strike. There wasn't going to be a strike. They said strikes called off. We have a tentative agreement. You're going to ratify it. We're going to move on. Um, so 
I would say like another dynamic that people need to understand about the union side of this and at labor notes, this is like a big thing we are looking at is like, just like workers seem to have, like Alex said, you told them they're essential. So their expectations for being treated as such have been raised. There's something, it's hard to say, we're still, it's still developing, but there's something like that happening in some of these unions, especially in the UAW. Seems like it's happening in IATSE too, where the members are moving further ahead than their leaders were ready to go when they started negotiations months ago. So, you know, the UAW currently has this national referendum vote on having direct elections of the top officers. The Teamsters are now electing new leadership after an incumbent who's leaving after 23 years. So that plus some of the ways that people are talking about contracts that would be totally normal, passable five, 10 years ago, status quo, union contracts, suddenly it's certain things are becoming unacceptable. Um, and we'll see if this means that like the union movement is really sort of turning a, a page from how it's operated since basically the Reagan era. Um, but if it does, that's what I feel like could be gasoline on this whole thing is if the unions say, you know, actually that's not good enough anymore. We aren't going to do 16 hour days. You know, you saw all these strikes this year about forced overtime. That was like a huge part of it. And part of that is the pandemic. If you stay at a job when there's huge understaffing crisis, it means that you have much more work to do, right? You, you stayed there and all your coworkers are suddenly gone. So you have all the workload. This is true at UPS. It's true at Frito-Lay, true at Kellogg's, true at all these places. And suddenly this, this has been true for a while for a lot of these workers, 80 hour weeks, suddenly it's no longer acceptable. So the question is, can the unions kind of turn that feeling of we need more, the members need more into something proactive and productive as opposed to sort of being dragged into strikes like has happened at John Deere and might still happen at IATSE. Right. I want to also share, I mean, it's Halloween and you have a kind of scary photo, Jonah, that you tweeted out. Uh, Deere strike captain, I just realized I've been misspelling Deere this whole time. Sorry, <laughs> I need to put it knee at the end. Okay. A strike captain sent me this photo with the caption, this is security transporting people in and out. Presumably people are scared to show their faces while undermining the strike dystopian. And uh, here's the actual photo. Let me just zoom in on that. Can you guys see? Yeah. No, it looks like one of the vans from the purge. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, there was... There was um, there was internal guidance in a, a, a uh, internal FAQ where John Deere was like, we recommend you don't wear John Deere apparel outside of the workplace, you know, during the strike. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's quite dystopian. You have members on strike and people are scared to show their face because they're trying to bust the strike and they're embarrassed as they should be. Yeah, that's a good thing. It's great. That is a good thing. What else? Everyone should, by the way, follow both Alex and Jonah on Twitter. And also Jonah has a great, what's it called? It's called who, who gets the bird.substack.com. It's a complicated name. It's a good reference, yeah. but I didn't never explain it. So, Yeah. What is it? <laughs> it would take, it would take Jonah the rest of the hours. <laughs> it's too much. It's, it's a, uh, the, the, the Substack though is my attempt every week to list everything a union did in this country. Um, <laughs> Usually not fully, but it's there's a lot there. Yeah, in fact, but this week you suffered a setback, right? The NLRB's website is down or something? Yes, I try and <laughs> like log every new union effort that has been filed. And the NLRB site is uh, comically, you know, if anyone from the NLRB is listening, seriously, yeah. you guys <laughs> got a data entry problem. You got, you got some, you know, I can help you out. I'm happy to. 
coincidence. Yeah, true, true. Joe Biden, get on that. Yeah. It's really a great resource. I have to say it also incredibly funny because Jonah is exhaustive in his uh, tracking. So you went, uh, wind up learning about like two workers somewhere who split their vote on whether to unionize. Um, so it just incredibly intriguing uh, brings to light the fact that actually the labor movement is composed of real workers and real workplaces um, who are constantly, you know, going without any coverage of what's going on, but are engaged in very high stakes drama all the time. Um, and so, yeah, just a, I certainly look at Jonah's newsletter all the time. Yeah. And you got some workshops coming up from Labor Notes, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, Labor Notes, like I said before, is, you know, it's a media project, but it's also an organizing project for anyone who wants to organize in their workplace and especially union members. So we have online events all the time. They're like, you know, 15 bucks, really cheap. And you do organizing trainings, meet union members across the country. We also have an annual or every other year conference that I know Alex has gone to um, in Chicago. Uh, so next year we'll have our big conference with, you know, three to 5,000 union members who are trying to change the labor movement and fight the boss. And, uh, the only good conference. (laughs) Yeah. The only one I get (laughs) to. Uh huh. I think I get forced into going to a couple, but that's the good one. So just a hearty recommendation for labor notes. Okay, cool. And this is just, so this is disgusting. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is, was deer, deer was like uh, 24 hours out from a picketer getting killed. We're cool with more picketers risking their lives to exercise the right to be on the picket line. I mean, we got to do something about that. Is there a petition? I know I sound naive, a petition or a phone call or something. You know, uh, there, there, there's a solidarity fund people can chip into, but I think, I honestly think that the best thing people can do as just sort of public uh, onlookers is like this strike, if it goes long, um, could just kind of fade into the background and workers know this. And, and what Deer fears is that it doesn't, you know, in their internal messaging, they're like, the media coverage is really unfriendly to Deer. And they're like, we think we can, we can outlast it basically. So, you know, people have to, uh, equate John Deere with, you know, the, the worst corporate actor. Yeah. I mean, the, right. the way they're behaving right now. So I feel like, you know, just not forgetting about the story, uh, telling it to people, you know, you know, if you know any farmers, like talk to those people, it's a huge, they have a lot of leverage in this uh, moment. So, uh, yeah. Why do we go to this party? People beginning. should crash this party. I think it just, ha- I think it's happening now and, uh, we'll see if anyone, uh, crashes. Yeah. There's a secret executive party in outside Kansas city. So that's uh, salaried workers leaked to the press. I'll just, you know, to emphasize what Jonah was saying about people forgetting about strikes, like Kellogg workers have now been on strike for weeks. Um, and, you know, it's a significant number of workers spread across several states. Um, all of Kellogg's cereal plants are on strike. Um, and it's, you know, it fades very quickly, right? There's headlines about a strike happening. And then the workers, you know, are by themselves, if especially if they're in more rural or isolated parts of the country. Um, some of these plants are in cities or at least within metro areas. Some are not. Um, and so workers are out there. They're holding the line. And, you know, employers in this moment are cutting off health care. Um, so those workers at Kellogg's now are without health insurance. Um, the employer cut them off and did not communicate with them otherwise. Right. I mean, I've been in touch with some of those strikers. They haven't they didn't hear until two days ago anything from the company. Meanwhile, some of them, you know, someone I spoke with said his coworker uh, was diagnosed with cancer. 
um, just a few days ago and cannot get chemo if the strike continues, right? And so these are incredibly high stakes. And the more isolated those workers feel, the better it is for the company, right? Yeah. Kellogg's would really wants people to forget about this. Um, and it's only when there is sort of a resurgence of interest or pressure on them that they're willing to do things like go back to the bargaining table, which they're now doing. Um, so I just want to say, you know, we hope I certainly hope that strikes start proliferating. You know, it's possible. We didn't talk much about Kaiser Permanente on the West Coast, but that is a looming multi-union strike that's on the horizon. Um, and so while those things are all important, so too are the existence of already ongoing strikes. Um, and, you know, if workers are losing those strikes, that is bad news. And that is going to be a lesson learned by the broader workforce in this country. Um, so it's very important that not only, you know, people support and talk about strikes when they start, but they, that they continue doing that. Right. Yeah, we're going to, we'll do that. We'll try to shame people every week. <laughs> That's a good segment. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. Leslie does. We do like to do that. Really quickly, though, before you guys go, I was going to ask a question. Oh, Jonah, you may recently made a video with More Perfect Union. Yeah. Is that what it's called? More Perfect Union. Yeah, yeah, Union? More Perfect Union, yep. About Joe Biden. Can you just yeah. summarize your thoughts on? Yeah, sure. I mean, I you know, you want to talk about the political role that people can play in this. I think we collectively, the left, whatever you think of yourself, progressives can set a political norm for the Democratic Party, especially, but all politicians that they should be on the side of workers in a strike. This is like not a controversial position when there's a conflict so bad, there's a work stoppage. You know, the labor movement, we say, which side are you on? And these politicians either have legislative power or just a huge bully pulpit that they can speak out in favor of the workers. So, you know, the video I did with More Perfect Union was basically saying you have these miners who've been on strike for seven months. You have nurses in Massachusetts been on strike for seven months. These are clearly conflicts that it is in the interest of the working class and of these workers in particular that the state say we're on the side of the workers. We, we're not on the side of the big healthcare corporation or the big mining corporation that's funded by hedge funds. Um, but Joe Biden will not say anything. Uh, they asked him, you know, last week, a couple weeks ago, what do you think of the John Deere strike, and he just said they have a right to strike, which is totally inadequate. Um, we know they have a right to strike. No one thinks they're breaking the yeah, law thanks, by striking. Thanks, Joe. Um, you know, it was interesting because- I mean, he was at the top of his law school class, so no wonder he <laughs> grasps that so thoroughly. He has the rights, yeah, 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 that 85-year-old that law. Um, but, you know, it was interesting this week because we saw Marty Walsh go to a picket line, which is some people said is the first time a labor secretary has gone to an active picket line. We did see the agriculture secretary who used to be the governor of Iowa go to the John Deere strike picket line. I think it needs to become common sense in our politics that when there is a labor dispute, politicians have a role to play. The state has a role to play on the side of the workers, whether that's just about verbal support or if it's about, we're not going to do business with you while you're in a work stoppage with your worker. You know, John Deere makes hundreds of millions of dollars on state and local contracts. We can't accept that while there's uh, a strike happening until you meet the workers' demand. So I don't think that the left or whoever, you know, sort of the, the, the common sense of progressives in this country has thought deeply enough about this, uh, I think we can say, point to all these strikes, all these activities, all these negotiations and say, politicians, not just running for office, but in office, including the president, need to be vocal about this. It's in the public interest that these workers win their demands. Yeah. Any final words from either of you guys? Anything you want to make sure you highlight or that people know about? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Support, support striking workers. Oh, you know what I would say? I, the last thing I would say is like, what I actually think is the most important thing people can do, and this might sound counterintuitive, is to organize your own workplace, wherever you work. Uh, the thing that's going to help John Deere workers and IATSE workers and union members in this country is not having a target on their back because they're the last hope of the organized working class. You need to organize your stuff. It'll raise standards for everyone. It'll protect you and people in your community. So if you really want to think about sort of long haul, what does it mean to support this cause? It really does start at your workplace in your community. Like this is something you need to take seriously for yourself if you want to, you know, be someone who's doing politics. Yeah, I mean, that is like the frustrating answer. Yeah. People often want to donate yeah. or other or boycott a consumer good or something like that. And that is, you know, the success of the business class that they've convinced you that that's the extent of what political participation is in this country. Um, I do think often people, at least the discourse in much of this country today is like, you know, are white collar workers workers and blah, 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 as if one union takes away from another. In fact, they all build upon each other. So just to emphasize that and Labor Notes provides good resources on the actual very complicated and oft kind of black box task of what does it mean to say I'm going to organize with my coworkers? How does that start? Does it start with me calling a union or does it start with us meeting at a pizza place and having a conversation? So I would just, again, emphasize people look at some of the resources Labor Notes provides and otherwise actually get a sense of what does your community and your workplace look like. The first answer is the pizza place. Just to be I was going to say, yeah, I want that's pizza. Yeah, I definitely want pizza. <laughs> quiz, Katie. Yeah. What's the answer? Yeah. I think that's the trick to the labor movement. Maybe more pizza. Yeah. Seriously. I, I don't think so. I, I think the labor like... movement is drowning in pizza. <laughs> oh, true. is it? All right. Well, maybe more good pizza. That's true. That's true. Maybe yeah. ice cream. Yeah. Has anyone considered ice cream? Uh, we could, we could work with that. Yeah. yeah. Those two things are how you get me to exactly. a meeting. Yeah. And karaoke, but that's a little hard in COVID and harder to coordinate. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Everyone check them out on, uh, and who's the pic, who, who are you? Who's that picture of you on your sub stack? I mean, not oh, picture. Who is oh, that? it's also complicated. It's a, uh, that's Tony Mazzocchi. He is the reason there is an occupational safe safety and health administration in this country. He's a oh, hero. Mr. OSHA. The, uh, yeah. Mr. OSHA, Mr. Uh, yeah. Oil and chemical <laughs> atomic workers union leader who, tried to found a labor party in the 90s and is awesome. Oh, great. All right. Wow. You almost fooled me. I thought it was a very aging photo of you. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a picture for me in the future. Right. In the future, yeah. But yeah, thank you guys so much thanks. for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us, thanks. Katie. Yeah, Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.